Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? We have a new video up on YouTube. This week we go in exploration of a hill prairie here in central Illinois. Hill prairies are incredibly unique ecosystems, and some really cool plants live there. So head on over to youtube.com slash plants and check out the video. Also, while you're there, check out all the other videos we have. In Defense of Plants is now a video series as well. So if you're enjoying them, hit subscribe and keep checking back for more. We're really having fun making these. This week's video includes original music from Snowball 2, based out of Los Angeles. So give them a shout out as well. They're very kind in letting us use their music. Alright, what do I have for you this week? Joining us from the University of Florida is Dr. Emily Sessa, who is a self-proclaimed fern slash lycophyte fanatic and that passion really bleeds into her work now her lab focuses on the evolutionary processes that have generated and helped maintain fern diversity through time ferns and lycophytes as many of you probably know are an ancient lineage they have been around for a long long time and not only do we discuss that but we also discuss how you can piece together genomes of organisms and get big pictures that relate to things like biogeography and the uh, distribution of species and the position of continents through time. Dr. Sess's work is fascinating and you can really hear the passion no matter what she's talking about. It was a really fun discussion and I know you're going to enjoy this one. However, before we get there, I've got a few orders of business to take care of. First and foremost, we still have stickers for sale. They are designed by Tom Pearson Designs, and they look great on pretty much whatever you want to put them on. Now here's the catch, although it's a good one. Every sticker you purchase, 50% of that purchase is going to the North American Orchid Conservation Center. So it's helping conserve and understand orchids that are threatened throughout North America. So every sticker you purchase is going to a good cause. Head on over to indefensiveplants.com shop and pick up your own. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast and you would like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself kickbacks such as stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, which, by the way, I just uploaded a ton of photos from my summer work in southern Appalachia, so prime time to be checking that out. And for those of you looking to give a little bit more, you can even get yourself a producer credit on this show. Fancy, fancy. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Alan, Katharina, Shane, Amy, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Christopher, Sienna and Garth, Troy, Margie, Laura, and Mark. So thank you to everyone who has supported us thus far. It really means the world to me, and it really does help podcasting can get a little pricey from month to month and every little donation counts towards things like keeping the website open keeping the hosting going helping with new equipment and helping get to and from interviews from time to time so again thank you to everyone who has given thus far it really does mean a lot to me if money isn't your thing which i totally understand at the very least consider heading on over to wherever you downloaded this episode and giving the podcast a review Reviews and subscriptions not only help me make a better podcast for you, they help indefensive plants reach a wider audience. And at the end of the day, if we're going to cure plant blindness for a wider swath of the globe, we need to be getting the word out there. And reviews are how all these different podcatchers choose who gets to see or gets recommended different podcasts. So the better we do on that regard, the more people are going to see or at least be exposed 
to the information contained within each episode. All right, I think that's enough rambling for me. Let's head on over to my discussion with Dr. Emily Sessa. This one is fascinating, and uh, I just, I love ferns and lycophytes. What can I say? All right, everyone, I hope you enjoy. Cool. Uh, Dr. Emily Sessa, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I love the podcast, so this is really a huge honor. Um, Thank you. So I, <laughs> I am an assistant professor at the University of Florida. I am just about to start my fifth year here, which is kind of unbelievable. I can't believe it's it's been that long. I feel like I just got here. Um, it's a really wonderful place. Congrats. Uh, and- Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a fern fanatic. I love ferns. Um, I, when I was an undergraduate, I was at Cornell University, and I, I did some work on mosses as an undergraduate researcher. And then uh, when I was looking at grad schools, I was kind of like either mosses or ferns, and ferns ended up being the thing that sort of sucked me in. Um, and the more I learned about them, the more I just fell in love. They're really amazing plants. Um, they've got really interesting biology and really great stories to tell. So yeah, it's uh, it's a real joy to get to come to work every day and work on them and work with people who love them as much as I do. It's really great. I like that the decision was, hmm, mosses are ferns, when in reality, most of the time, it's, uh, you know, something like an animal, but that's, that's, yeah. it's charming. And I'm glad, you, you know, you got bit by the bug early on. What, what exactly is it about these lineages that really appeals to you? Because, you know, there's, there's definitely the aesthetic element. Everyone likes a fern print or that picture, a painting of the ferns in the background. But, yeah. you know, aside from just their aesthetic appeal, they're, they're fascinating organisms and they've been around for a long time, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I've always been really attracted to plants, um, even from being a little kid. I mean, it was always plants. I was never interested in animals. I don't know why. Um, and part of it, I think, probably was aesthetic, but plants are just so beautiful. Um, and these plants in particular, mosses and ferns, um, to me, they're really captivating because there's so much interesting biology that's going on with them that has nothing to do with flowers. You know, I think when we think about flowering plants, often it's so easy to get sort of trapped in the funnel of the flower and like, you know, think about all the biology that goes on with pollination and with animal interactions. Um, And these lineages have very little of that. Um, There's some cool work that's being done that's showing um, relationships that mosses and other bryophytes have with microarthropods and things like that. But ferns in particular actually tend to have very few um, interactions and relationships with animals. Um, So these are very old lineages. So we're talking about, um, you know, the the groups of uh, vascular plants and land plants that have been around the longest. So if we include bryophytes, we're going back, you know, like four or 500 million years at least um, to when these things would have emerged and started to grow on land. And the, the bryophyte lineages, so there are three of them, if we want some basic review of plant phylogeny here. So we've sure. got the little warts, the hornworts, and the mosses. So those guys do not have vascular tissue. So all of their water movement through their plant <laughs> is um, done in more or less passively. And then you get the evolution of um, vascular tissues in the group that as a whole we call the tracheophytes. So that includes the lycophytes, the ferns, and then all the seed plants, the the gymnosperms and the angiosperms. Um, And so the ferns are kind of, they're unique because they're sort of I hate to use sort of like like reading across the tips sort of thinking, but they're sort of physiologically like bet- kind of between the bryophytes and the seed plants. And so the seed plants have all these crazy physiological adaptations to be able to live in super harsh environments and 
their plumbing is kind of different there in terms of their xylem and flow and water movement and stuff like that. So the ferns are this really interesting group um, that's, you know, maybe something like 380, 400 million years old. Um, so they're this cool mix of like these really ancient features, but they have managed to hang on for a really long time. Um, so yeah, there, there's lots of cool stuff about their biology and physiology that makes them a ton of fun to work on. Wow, you uh, mirrored a lot of really wonderful sentiments there, and I'm happy to hear that as a child it was always plants. It wasn't this thing that came later. Uh, it's it's refreshing to hear that. But um, you know, the, one of the major things you just mentioned there is not only are the lycophytes and the ferns the first of the real vascular plants that we know of, or at least have extant lineages today. Um, but also the fact that most of them don't interact with animals in, a, in, in the way we think of most plants interacting with animals. And do you think that just stems from the fact that these lineages uh, evolved and were in place before most terrestrial fauna or flora, yeah, fauna ever came online? I mean, yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, when I think about animal interactions with plants, there's two kind of main categories that I think about. One is going to be pollination biology, obviously. And so that's going to be limited to things that require pollination. So that'll be things with pollen and those are the seed plants. And so by virtue of not having any of that sort of reproductive biology, that's a huge area of interaction with animals that, that these plants just don't have. So that that we can attribute to the fact that they never evolved um, seeds and flowers that require pollination. The other big area that I think about is herbivory. So um, animals eating plants, right? Um, and that's a that's a more interesting one because there would have been animal lineages, insects certainly, starting to evolve around the same times as these plants do. Um, and ferns actually have a huge, some of them, not all of them, but many of them have a huge arsenal of um, what we call secondary compounds that tend to deter herbivores of various kinds. Um, so secondary compounds are... Um, compounds that are sort of byproducts of the main metabolic processes that can be kind of modified in various ways to do other functions. Um, so there are a number of ferns actually that produce carcinogens that we know. Um, one of the uh, key ferns that, that does a lot of this is bracken fern. It's Teridium aquilinum, um, which interestingly is one of the ones that's eaten a lot in Southeast Asia. Um, and I've heard anecdotally that there are actually higher incidences of some types of cancers in the, the parts of the world where that particular species is eaten a lot. Um, and if you if you look up the like Google the chemistry of Teridium aquilinum, if you can find like you know an old book or something that talks about it, it's a paragraph of compounds that this plant makes. It's really incredible. Um, so carcinogens to mammals are in there. Another thing that they make a class of compounds is called, I never can pronounce this correctly, but it's something, it's like ectosones and it has to do with insects and they're molting. And so basically when an insect munches on this plant and the plant releases this chemical that causes the insect to molt like explosively. And so it's a serious deterrent for insects. Um, and often if you go out into a forest, there'll be like a beautiful browse line for the deer, right? So the deer have eaten everything in the understory except the ferns. And the ferns are like just hanging out, happy as clams. Um, so even deer that will eat anything will eat ferns last. <laughs> so they're quite well defended. Wow, that's remarkable. And I've always heard how, how potent uh, the bracken can be. I think David Attenborough in The Private Life of Plants said, if yeah. you eat this, you're liable to go blind or get cancer. But uh, I never realized molting to death has to be one of the most brutal ways yeah. to go. Yeah, yeah, I would not want to experience that. Luckily, we, we won't ever, but it can't be pleasant. Yeah, unfortunately, we just get the cancer side of that deal. But yeah. uh, regardless, um, now there's another group you mentioned that are probably a little less familiar to the casual listener is the lycophytes. Uh, can you just kind of give us a, a brief overview of what that is in terms of uh, what they look like and where you can find them? 
Yeah, so um, the lycophytes are another very cool group of plants. Um, so if, if listeners are familiar with the term pteridophyte or ferns and fern allies, um, that sort of historical language that was used to refer to ferns and lycophytes together before we understood the relationships, the phylogenetic relationships of these groups to each other and to seed plants. Um, so we now recognize that if you can sort of picture a family tree or picture relationships in your head, you've got the seed plants and the ferns sister to each other. So they're each other's closest relatives. And then the next branch out is the lycophytes. And so the lycophytes are sister to the ferns and the seed plants together. So if you go way back, if you think down the tree into the history that all three of those groups share, the thing that unites them is vascular tissue. So xylem and phloem, these tissues that are um, in the case of xylem, moving water using, you know, um, transpiration to pull water through the stem of the plant. These three groups have those tissues when, if you go a little further out, then we get to the bryophytes, which don't have those tissues. Um, so the lycophytes have vascular tissue. They also um, have spores, so they reproduce by spores, which uh, is similar to ferns and is opposed to seed plants. So seed plants have seeds. Um, and the lycophytes uh, there are about 1,200 or 1,100 species of lycophytes, so it's not a tremendously large group. Uh, by comparison, there are something like 11,000 species of ferns, so ferns are uh, quite a bit larger than the lycophytes. Um, the lycophytes include things like selaginella, which is a, a pretty common, um, you can find it like in Lowe's or Home Depot to garden with. There are a couple really common species, and they have really, really small leaves. Um, the technical name of their leaves is the microphyll. Um, and they only have one teeny little vein that goes out to, to plumb that leaf to bring it xylem and phloem, uh, as opposed to like the ferns and the seed plants, which can have these massive leaves with really complicated webs of vascular tissue. So the lycophytes have uh, these microfills with very simple plumbing. Um, they also suffer from really terrible common names. So, for example, um, if you've heard of club mosses, that's a group in the lycophytes. I guess they kind of look like clubs. They sort of look like mosses, but they're totally not mosses. It's a completely different group of plants. Um, so the spike mosses or the club mosses, if you've heard those terms, those are referring to lycophytes uh, and not to any type of moss. <laughs> okay, so it's just kind of this unfortunate reference to anything that's kind of low and growing and isn't really a vascular or like a big tr plant kind of thing. Um, yeah, I like that the low and growing is totally what's being like picked up on, even though some of them are... They can be epiphytes, so they can be high, they can be big, actually. Um, they sort of have this superficial resemblance to, like, a moss on steroids, which I think is kind of how they probably got that, that name. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good way to put moss on steroids. Okay. <laughs> um, so, in the, the grand scheme of things, these are ancient lineages. Uh, you know, how long have they been around, and, and what was going on in the world when, the, when these groups kind of, when we start seeing a fossil record, at least, for them? Mm -hmm. I think the thing for me that's um, the most interesting to think about in the evolution of these plants is that you have to picture a landscape that looks nothing like what we see today. Because if you look out your window today, the first thing you're going to see is trees, probably, right? You're going to see trees or you're going to see grasses, depending on where you are. And none of those plants existed back at the time that we're talking about. Um, so, I mean, if we're talking about the earliest evolution of some of these tracheophytes, these plants with vascular tissues, so our modern representatives of these groups are the lycophytes, the ferns, the seed plants. The seed plants are the things that really dominate our modern landscapes today. Um, so, you know, everything from giant conifer trees and, you know, pine trees and stuff like that to giant, you know, other types of trees, all of those are seed plants. So you have to think back to a landscape where 
the plants are much lower. So everything that's on the land is going to be sort of low and small. It doesn't stay that way for very long, though, because the lycophytes uh, produce tremendously large um, plants with a lot of biomass. Uh, and in fact, most of what we burn today when we burn coal is actually the compressed bodies of these massive lycophyte trees uh, that were around during the Carboniferous period. Um, so it's called the Carboniferous period because that's when all of the um, all of this carbon was produced. But it really is the biomass uh, of these primarily of these lycophyte plants. So I'm opening up my little helpful international stratigraphic chart so that I don't mess up the dates here. But the Carboniferous, so that was around 360 million years ago to around 300 million years ago. Wow. So a 60 million year period where lycophytes were the predominant group of plants on Earth. Um, so, and they did form trees. Uh, and by the time that they had sort of formed these, they'd gotten large enough, evolved to be large enough to form kind of lycophyte forests. This is also a time when you had, you know, dragonflies the size of, you know, compact cars, right? Like, really, really interesting. I don't actually know that much other than the dragonflies. I don't know that much about the animals that were around at that time. I just think of, like, big salamanders and yeah, centipedes yeah. and millipedes. <laughs> yeah, totally. That kind of thing. Really large insects. Yeah. So a very different, at least from the perspective of plants. Well, also from the perspective of animals. Um, but definitely from the perspective of plants. Once you got to seeing forests, they would have been nothing like the forests that we see today. So just a completely different kind of palette in the background um, of That's the landscape. That's so cool land. to think about. And and it's funny to mention this is like this is all going on. The major coal beds are from the Carboniferous period, which predates the Triassic period by a few million years at least. So when you see all those memes and jokes about burning dinosaurs when you're burning coal, yeah. it's right. way before that arbitrary time period. Yeah, this is at least 50 million years before the Triassic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there were no dinosaurs around in the Carboniferous. I think I can say that. Yeah, Again. that's that's a safe one. I'm pretty sure okay. that's a safe one. <laughs> cool. So yeah, they. I mean, they are unfortunately been. Uh, I don't even know if unfortunate. Scratch that. Uh, they've they've been reduced in size since then. Um, mm -hmm. I, I guess from what I've understood. There were always small lineages, it's just that the major epochs of change through time eliminated the larger lineages, leaving only the smaller ones behind, or am I misunderstanding that? No, I, I think that's definitely fair to say for lycophytes. I mean, we, there's great evidence from the fossil record of, you know, tremendous trees that were related to or the ancestors of our modern lycophytes. Um, and we have nothing like that left anymore. So there are, there are three groups of lycophytes that are around today. There's Selaginella. There's isoides, which are the quillworts, which are, they're, they're kind of grass-like and maybe six inches to a foot tall at most. And they actually are aquatic, so they grow underwater, which is pretty cool. Um, and then there's the um, the lycopodiaceae, so the, the actual lycopod family. Um, and those guys, you know, at most they can be maybe a meter, maybe a little more than that um, in size, but nothing, no, you know, no trunk forming, no wood forming, um, anything like that. So, yeah, totally different than what would have been around all those millions of years ago. Much, much reduced in size. Neat. Now, before we jump into the meat of what your actual research is all about, um, I think it's important to note that, you know, I've even gotten in trouble for this, is saying the word primitive or basal. You know, the way we talk about mosses, bryophytes, uh, you know, ferns, lycopods... Mm. Uh, that's not really an accurate way to describe them. They're not primitive. In fact, they've stood the test of time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned this because this is like 
a soapbox that I, I and many other people like to get up on occasionally. So I, I loathe the word basil used incorrectly, which it almost always is. Another one that really kills me is lower plants. When people often talking about, even ferns and lycophytes will talk about them as lower plants. Um, and those words kill me because they are a direct reference to the sort of ladder of life thinking, right? Where you're climbing up, up, up towards some, you know, and like what you need to do is take that ladder and turn it on its side, right? Because all of these groups are around today. I mean, there's nothing lower about a fern unless you're sort of expecting that evolution is progressing towards seed plants, which just doesn't make any sense if you think about and if you look at out at the world today they're all out there they've all been evolving the same amount of time i mean ferns and seed plants both come from an ancestor that existed at the same time and they're both alive today so how is one lower and the other higher i've never i've never understood the logic of this if you think about it for more than like a couple seconds um and the word basil is a really challenging one because People use that word a lot, uh, and its corollary is early diverging lineages. So, like, bryophytes are often referred to as early diverging lineages. I'm using my little air quotes here. Um, and what people mean when they say that is that when you look at a phylogenetic tree, you see the bryophytes as sort of, for example, as successively sister to the lycophytes, the ferns, the seed plants. And so... When you go down to the base of the tree, then people look at where those branches are coming off and they say, oh, they're basal or they're early diverging. But the thing is that if you think back to the divergence event that happened, like let's say, let's talk about the, the event that separated um, the lycophytes from the ferns and the seed plants. At the point when that divergence happened, 300 and however many million years ago, we evolution there was no no idea of what was going to come after that point right so there was a split between two things an equal split and then 350 million years later one of those branches has become one set of things and the other branch has become the other set of things but at the time of the split one of those was not early diverging compared to the other they split apart from one another so now to come back to that tree 350 million years later and say oh the one that just has one lineage as opposed to a few lineages next to it, we're going to call that one earlier. It just doesn't make any logical sense. Um, and the other thing that I think is a real problem with this language is that you're talking about extant plants and you're calling them basal. And bryophytes, extant living today bryophytes, are no closer to the base of the tree than is an orchid, right? They are we're at now, we are at time zero, if you like. And all of these things, to get back to those branch points, you have to go back, if you, if you want to get to their common ancestor, you have to go back 500 million years or whatever down either of those branches. So by referring to extant lineages as early diverging or as basal, you're, you're implying somehow that those extant plants are closer to the base of the tree when they're just not. Um, so for a number of reasons, I really object to those terms. Um, and it's not just because they're usually used to describe the plants that I love the most. Like, objectively, they are not good ways to talk about the tree of life. So I much prefer language that just describes the relationships between the extant lineages. So I don't say early diverging this or that. I say the bryophytes are sister to X, Y, or Z. Or I say the lycophytes are sister to the euphilophytes, right? I use the language, I use language that describes 
the relationships among the extant taxa that focuses on the relationships that we see between them. Right. Um, the one time that you can use basal is if you're actually describing something that like happened at the base of the tree. Like you could say that um, a trait, for example, is basal or derived, right? Like you could call a, a particular trait, you know, you can use that language to actually refer to its physical location in the tree, but you cannot refer to an extant lineage as basal or derived. Derived is the other, like, they go together hand in hand, and I hate them all. That was a really long diatribe. I'm sorry. You opened a can of worms there, man. No, that's that's the, the can of worms I wanted to get into. Uh, that's really good, and I'm happy you even gave us the replacement language to go with that and helping understand it. So, in other words, what you're saying is, because I'm older than my sister doesn't mean I'm more basal than my sister, or my parents are more basal than I am. It's just... Right, exactly. Yeah. It's a family tree, and there's no hierarchy. There's no agency going towards some end goal. It's just a matter of... Exactly. They're all here, and we have to treat them as such. No, that's great. If you teach, you can totally use the analogy of a human family tree to think about this. So, like, if, if you, like, let's say that you have a, a group of cousins. You've got an aunt, and your aunt has, you know, five or six children, let's say. So you've got five or six cousins. And they're a clade, right? And there they would be if we think about your family as a phylogenetic tree. So essentially what we're saying is that we are calling you basal, or early diverging compared to your cousins, just because there's one of you and five of them. That's essentially, like, it's sort of a size of clade thing and just the way that the branching works, which when you think about it like that, you're like, that it makes absolutely no no logical sense. So, yeah. Yeah, but how funny would it be if, like, on Thanksgiving, one of your grandparents says something offensive, you're like, oh, you're so basal. Like, oh, totally. <laughs> cool. But here, maybe we should actually be using these as, like, you know, to conquer plant blindness by making plant-based insults. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're talking to the right crowd right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get a bunch of emails with different, like, plays on words. Yeah. Uh, so you, you spend a lot of time in your research kind of elucidating these relationships uh, of these major clay, lineages of ferns, clades. Um, I, I actually don't know the proper way of describing it, but, uh, you know, why why does that interest you? And I guess what... What in relation to other plants, so flowering plants, do we know as much about ferns because they've been around longer, or are we, we tend to bring these biases in where we say, oh, flowering plants are pretty, let's study them a little bit more? Um, I mean, there are definitely way, way more people working on flowering plants than on ferns and lycophytes, but, you know, that's probably fair. I mean, there are way more flowering plants than there are ferns and lycophytes, so there's probably something like 350 or 400,000, I forget what the most recent estimates are for number of flowering plants, um, but it's something it's it's in that that order um as opposed to 11 or so thousand species of ferns about 1200 lycophytes about 1200 gymnosperms um so the lycophytes the gymnosperms quite small um the ferns a little bit larger but then the angiosperms like you know they're this tremendous radiation so it's not surprising that they get a lot of attention um and you know most of our uh our, our world, certainly our human world, is based on what these plants provide us with, you know, everything obviously from oxygen to the feed for all of our animals to, you know, the clothes that you and I are wearing, the paint in the walls probably has corn syrup in it. Corn syrup is in like everything or corn-based products, right, or in everything around us. So um, it's not surprising. Um, but I mean, like I said before, I think ferns are, are really fascinating because these plants can tell us a lot about basic plant biology that doesn't have anything to do with flowers and these animal relationships and stuff like that. Um, and to me, phylogenies are they're this sort of central organizing principle for everything that I think about. Because um, I think there's something really fundamentally beautiful about 
the idea of the tree of life, you know, about the idea of this structure that connects you and me and the bird outside the window and the worm crawling under the soil, you know, we're, we're all actually, um, I was just at the International Botanical Congress and uh, in China a couple weeks ago, and Brent Mishler, who's a faculty member at the University of California at Berkeley, um, he gave several talks, but in one of his talks, he said that the tree of life is like the force. Uh, it binds the the galaxy together, right? It, it binds us all, all living things together. And I thought that was really beautiful because it's really true. You know, the the tree of life is this this thing that that unites every living thing on Earth. And so, trying to elucidate that, trying to figure out its structure, to me, is a really um, valuable and worthwhile undertaking in itself. But then you can use those trees to do really cool things. So once you've got the structure of that tree and you know how things are related to each other, you can reconstruct their biogeographic history, for example. you can, And that's something that I, I love to do. I love doing um, work on biogeography and thinking about historical biogeography and where these the ancestors of my modern extant plants were, you know, 20 million years ago. What did the continents look at, like at that time? Uh, I'm starting to get more into thinking about climate and thinking about you know, what, what might the ocean currents have been around the continents 20 million years ago that affected the climate uh, in these places uh, and therefore might have led to different groups either going extinct or diversifying. Um, you can reconstruct the evolution of traits onto phylogenetic trees so that you can think about how individual traits might have either led to a group going extinct or, you know, been a, uh, a key trait that led to a, an explosive or adaptive radiation. So there are all these neat things you can do with trees besides just sort of appreciating the beauty of figuring out, you know, the fundamental structure of how life is all related to each other. Yeah, that's really cool. I like just the amount of, like, one type of inquiry leading to all of these different fields that, uh, you know, you don't necessarily maybe think as being related. You talk about genetics, and then you're saying, oh, but this can also tell us where the continents once were, because if you have a fern lineage that's both found on the eastern coast of South America and the western coast of Africa... Yeah, totally. You know, that's yeah, really and, neat. And, I mean, that like that example you just gave... That goes all the way back to Darwin, right? I mean, Darwin, on his voyage around the globe on the Beagle, he made those kinds of observations, and he wasn't thinking about phylogenies, but now we can apply phylogenies to those types of observations, and it's just one more piece of evidence or one more um, piece in the puzzle of figuring out the history of the evolution of life on Earth, which is, like, the greatest story of all, right? Hell yeah. <laughs> So what, what groups in particular are you working with from, time, from you know, week to week, month to month, year to year? Is there any specific ferns and lycopods or uh, all-encompassing? So, uh, yes is the answer um, to all of that. So um, there, there's one genus that I have done a lot of work on, which is Dryopteris, which is the wood ferns. Um, so I did my entire PhD was on this genus of ferns. They're really lovely, wonderful plants. Um, about 400 species in this genus, um, and as their name suggests, the wood ferns, they're found in forests, um, more or less cosmopolitan, so around the globe, but they're temperate. So, like, you know, you, you think of ferns often as, like, oh, rain, you know, super understory rainforest plants, and in fact, there's no dryopteris in understory rainforests. So, they like to live in temperate forests and, you know, up mountains and things like that. Uh, so, I still work a bit on dryopteris, um, and probably always will, very close to my heart, um, so that's kind of like a sort of, you know, a very focused on species in one genus. Um, at the other end of the scale, I'm involved in a project right now that was funded by the National Science Foundation a couple years ago to build species level phylogenies for all flagellate plants. And so 
what a flagellate plant is. This is a new term that we haven't haven't used in our chat today. Um, but basically, if it lives on land and it's not a flowering plant, it's called a, it's a flagellate plant. So this group includes the bryophytes, the lycophytes, the ferns, and the gymnosperms. Actually, so kind of like half of the seed plants are in there in terms of one of the groups of seed plants is is included in here. Um, and the term flagellate plant refers to the fact that the sperm of all of these guys, all these different lineages, actually have flagella. So just like human sperm, they have these little you know, flagellate tails that they whip around that they use um, to propel themselves. And by the time you get to the angiosperms, the flowering plants, those guys have lost the flagella off of their sperm. So their sperm are delivered basically right to the egg. They don't have to do any swimming to get to the egg. Uh, whereas all these other groups, the flagella have been lost in a few places, um, uh, but for the most part, the, this um, feature of having flagellate sperm unites all of the land plants except the flowering plants. Um, so, so NSF had this program called Go Life, which stands for Genealogy of Life, and the goal of this was to illuminate the dark parts of the tree of life. And so we submitted a proposal where we proposed to sequence about two-thirds of the roughly 30,000 species of flagellate plants that are out there. Um, so it's a huge, yeah, it's a huge undertaking. Um, it's going really well. We've done uh, a successful pilot. And so um, we are at the point where we're ready to uh, sort of roll through and, and start sequencing lots and lots of these, um, of these species. And we're really excited about this project because our goal is really to produce a resource for the community of a huge volume of sequence data and some other assorted types of data that will go with the sequences that will be publicly available um, and free for use by the community. Um, and the probe set that we're developing will also be made publicly available oh, for yeah, their, their own stuff. And so kind of the, we're using sort of a community source model to get our material. So anyone who's listening who works on any of these lineages, this is the time that I advertise, um, if you work on bryophytes or lycophytes or ferns or gymnosperms, uh, if you have material that you can send us, so either uh, you know a freshly collected uh, specimen or something preserved in silica gel or even herbarium material, um, as long as it has an herbarium voucher with it, uh, if you were to give us that to sequence, we will provide you sequence data back. Um, so, like people don't believe me sometimes when I say this, but that is that it's true. Um, so we've got this money from NSF, and that's that's what we are meant to do with it, is um, to sequence approximately 20,000 species of flagellate plants. Uh, and, and my collaborators and I, we don't have all 20,000, uh, but the community, yeah, I know, the community hopefully does. And so um, if you're a student and you're doing a project on one of these groups and you need sequence data, we would love to talk with you and we would love to help you out. Um, oh, that is so, fantastic. I love yeah. that. It's really cool. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. Um, and we've made great progress so far, but we are, we are absolutely still looking for partners and for people who, who, you know, want to, want to have some free data produced for them basically. So, yeah. Wow, that is great. Yeah. So before we get, we'll, we'll, we'll break up what you just talked about into two big parts. So we'll start with the ferns, specifically Dryopteris. Um, you know, one of my favorite comments on that group, I think it came out of the Peterson's Field Guide for Ferns of North America. It just said, you know, Dryopteris is the genus of ferns that keeps any fern enthusiast from becoming complacent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then that just stems from the difficulty of, you know, trying to key them out to any specific species. Um, and, and one thing I've kind of picked up on is they, they hybridize a bit. Is that something common to a lot of ferns or is that a big thing in Dryopteris only? 
Um, again, the answer is yes to both of those things. So right. that is the hybridization is the reason that they keep people from becoming complacent. Um, so there's a really wonderful figure in the flora of North America of Dryopteris where um, there are 12 or 13 diploid species in, in the genus. So diploid just means, you know, sort of having the standard genetic component like you and I are diploid. Um, and the, it's kind of like a stop sign shape with the diploids at all the corners. And then there are these crazy lines all over the place that connect all these species together that indicate what's hybridizing. Oh, and out of these 12 diploids, um, or sorry, no, there's, there's even fewer than them. There's, there's 12 species in North America, um, and some of them are diploid and some of them are polyploid. Um, but the diploids and the polyploids then all hybridize further with each other. And I think there are 29 hybrids, so 12 kind of good species, either polyploid or diploid, plus another 29 hybrids. So essentially any time you find two Dryopteris growing together, um, chances are they'll be able to hybridize. Um, and the hybrid will probably be sterile, particularly if you had a, a diploid that managed to hybridize with a polyploid. Those are definitely going to be sterile. Um, but that they really keep it interesting. Um, and in some cases, they're, they'll be really beautiful and almost easy to figure out because if you get two of this, the sort of good species that are morphologically distinct and they've hybridized, often the hybrid will be this beautiful mix of the features from the two parents. And often that makes them quite easy, in fact, to figure out who those parents were. Um, but then if you get like a diploid and its polyploid offspring re-hybridizing with each other, so they're already close, and now it's just crazy. And those are really difficult to... Uh, to tell apart morphologically. So, yeah, no complacency if you're going to work on Dryopteris. And certainly if you're going to go out and try to find them in the field and identify them. Yeah. So this is probably happening. I mean, I've found uh, hybrids, which is kind of like a, well, yay, I did it kind of thing, that were outside of Dryopteris. Um, you know, is hybridization an important mechanism of speciation in ferns? Is it something that... Uh, holds them back. I mean, what is what does it fit into the bigger picture of the diversity the diversity of ferns that we see on this planet or is that too hard of a question to Yeah, that's an awesome question. It's a great question. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, so polyploidy and hybridization, they're two separate things, but it's it's convenient to talk about them together and they often go together. Um, so these are two phenomena that I would say one of the the biggest sort of changes in plant biology in the last even decade, I would say, is that our appreciation for polyploidy in particular and how important it has been in the history of the evolution of plant life on earth, um, our understanding has just, just exploded. And we now recognize that polyploidy is like a key and crucial, uh, component or phenomenon in plant evolution. So polyploidy, if you're not familiar with what this means is it's basically doubling your entire genome component. Um, so, you know, if we were to be polyploid, essentially that would mean we would have our entire set of chromosomes duplicated in our own you know, individual body. Um, so in animals, it's, we actually are now recognizing too that it's more common in animals than we have thought historically. But in humans, I mean, the example that's often given is Down syndrome, right? If you have a duplication of just one chromosome, so one extra chromosome 21, you have this whole chain of, um, you know, uh, phenotypic effects that occur in, in the individual because of that. And yet plants routinely tolerate very well having the entire uh, component of chromosomes duplicated. Uh, so it's really incredible, um, first, that they're able to do that uh, and, you know, survive and thrive following those kinds of events. And, in fact, put that extra 
uh, chromosome component to use and, and to do stuff with it that has allowed, in some cases, um, directly the diversification of large groups of, of plants. Um, and ferns, it turns out, are masters of polyploidy and hybridization. So uh, there was a paper, if you get into the literature about this at all, you'll come across the citation Wood et al. 2009. Um, and so that was a paper that uh, basically calculated the frequency of occurrence of polyploidy and hybridization across the major lineages of plants. And they found that approximately 15% of um, extant angiosperms are recent polyploids and 31% of ferns are recent polyploids. Wow. So yeah, like let's think about that for a sec. Like when you look out your window or when you go for a walk later today, potentially one out of three of the plants that you encounter is a polyploid, which is really crazy. Um, you know, especially if you're, you know, if you're walking in forest of ferns, um, one out of three of them for sure is likely to be an extant polyploid or, a, um, sorry, a recent polyploid. But then we get into like the history of polyploidy, um, you know, deep back in evolutionary time. And there are dozens and dozens of polyploidy events that have now been identified in uh, the evolution of various lineages of plants. And a lot of those analyses are done using phylogenies, which is great. You know, you can build these trees out of lots and lots of different genes, and then you look and see where you kind of have pileups of duplicated genes at a particular point in the phylogeny um, or in the evolutionary history. And so you, you actually can use the trees themselves to identify where these events have taken place. Um, but ferns are really exceptional at this. And so, yeah, undoubtedly polyploidy and hybridization have played a really big role in, in the evolution of ferns. Um, and, and the reason that they go together is when you duplicate your genome, if, if you have two things hybridized, often you get a sterile hybrid, right? So if you think about um, like a mule, right? It's a donkey and a horse, I think. Um, and so, and a mule is sterile. And often the reasons for that have to do with the numbers of chromosomes. And polyploidy is, without going into the details of it, is essentially a way of rescuing fertility. So if you have a sterile hybrid and you have a duplication of the chromosomes, you basically restore fertility to that organism at, at meiosis. And so you allow it to become fertile again. Um, and so that's, that's why we often talk about polyploidy and hybridization together. Interesting. So it's, it's in a sense, at least in the plant lineages, uh, and like you said, to some degree, the animals, it's almost like having extra copies incurs some sort of selective advantage, whether that be to, like you said, restore some stability or, you know, I'm guessing extra copies. If something goes wrong, you've got a few to make up for it or some sort of fitness benefit. You know, it's got to be working for them because it's been yeah. what, almost 500 million years. Yeah, yeah been so many of these events over those 500 million years. Um, so this is a really, really hot area of study today. Um, so looking at the dynamics of the genome after polyploidization and what happens to the various copies of genes. So often some of them are silenced. Sometimes you can have like all of the genes from one parent silenced. And then if you do that cross again, you'll either see the same thing or something different. Um, so this is a really fascinating and very active area of research in plant biology today. Um, so yeah, so looking at, at what happens to the copies of those genes. And there are some areas that, you know, we're just at the cusp of being able to ask questions about like epigenetics, right? Is this, you know, this sort of, it's, I mean, we've been, you know, we've known about it for a long time, but the way that we're able to research epigenetics today uh, is going to open a lot of doors, particularly in thinking about genome evolution and the, the relationships between the different copies of chromosomes and stuff like that. 
Um, and polyploidy is is super important just, you know, for plant evolution in general, as we've been talking about. But it's also really important for humans because a lot of the plants that we eat um, regularly are polyploids. So wheat, for example, is a hexaploid. Um, so, you know, bread wheat that your flour is coming from, um, that plant is a polyploid. Uh, and there are like innumerable, if you go and Google polyploid crops, you're going to get like millions of, of hits in Google because uh, there are so many crop plants that are polyploid. So in terms of, you know, our economies and agriculture uh, and breeding and horticulture and all this stuff, um, there's a lot to be learned from the biology of polyploids. Uh, and there's a lot to be learned by studying the biology of naturally occurring polyploids. So in you know, ferns or angiosperms and other seed plants that are naturally occurring polyploids, there's a lot that they can tell us that will be relevant for, you know, improving crops or, you know, um, doing breeding experiments where we're trying to use polyploidy to our advantage. So it's a very cool field. And that completely emphasizes the need to be doing these natural history sort of surveys in the wild going out. It doesn't, it's not enough to just work with the crops themselves or, you know, work with the explicitly the human applied aspect of that research. You don't know where these next discoveries are going to come from. And why would you want to stifle that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that it goes back to, to the basics of phylogeny, right? If you know about a polyploid that you're really interested in and you want to know more about where it came from and how it got that way build a phylogeny, figure out who its closest relatives are and go study those things. You know, I mean, this is, this is one of the many applications where the, the sort of basic science of building trees can have really important impacts um, and be really useful. Totally. Now to kind of get to the other half of what you, you were researching, the building the large tree of, uh, of flagellates and just understanding, um, you know, sort of the biogeographical relationships between major lineages and different continents you know, as you start to build these trees, obviously you're, you're, you're just beginning and you've got a lot, you know, more work is needed, of course. But, you know, are you getting a clearer picture of where a lot of uh, lineages may have originated or kind of the diversity and then new colonization events? You know, what kind of picture are you getting about the, the global distribution of these this, these groups of plants? So that's a great question. And and good answer to that is going to be pretty far down the line. Um so we often do these types of biogeographic analyses on kind of a smaller set of plants, but eventually it will be great to be able to do it on a, you know, on a really large group. Um, I mean, we do see in, in ferns, I can tell you for sure, we see a lot of evidence of long distance dispersal. Um, so ferns have these dust like spores. So if you like, you know, held, uh, like swept up the dust out of your kitchen and like put up that pile of dust in the palm of your hand, that's the equivalent of a few million fern spores, or maybe maybe even more than that. Um, and then if you were to, you know, just blow it, poof, and, and let it all fly away, you'd be dispersing, yeah, disgusting, I know, but you would be dispersing all those fern spores. Um, so they're great dispersers. So in some of these lineages, we can see already a lot of evidence for, um, you know, intercontinental long-distance dispersal events. Um, so you get these interesting patterns where you'll have a group that's, you know, primarily in the Americas, and then they'll be like, one individual in Africa that is embedded in the phylogeny, but biogeographically it's very far apart. Um, so you see those types of events happening a lot in ferns and in lycophytes, which have these um, have the spore dispersal. Uh, and you see it also in seed plants, although it's less common. Um, so those types of things, uh, we're definitely excited to be able to to do those reconstructions and make those kinds of inferences. That's really cool. 
And I remember reading the story about Krakatoa after Krakatoa exploded and essentially sterilized the entire island. Some of the first colonizers, besides uh, like films of algae, were ferns. Yeah. And that just harkens to this idea that the slightest breeze, and not to mention you know a hurricane or a typhoon, yeah. can really transport these organisms from landmass to landmass across the globe. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. And in fact, ferns often, yeah, as you just said, they're often the first colonizers or the first vascular plant colonizers of new volcanic islands. Um, and if you go to Hawaii, in fact, um, and you go to, you know, there's all the, the recent lava flows on the big island, uh, on the su southern part of the big island, and you can walk across those lava flows in places where, you know, they're 50 or 60 years old, um, not a million years old, right? Just 50 or 60 yeah. years old. And there's, there, you know, it's black, it's bare and lava, and then there'll be a little hole with a giant fern growing out of it. Like, it's just nuts. Uh, so, yeah, they're really good at getting to those places and living in those places and doing quite well. That's yeah. got to be so exciting to see, especially as like a tempered northeastern kid is just thinking, of, again, ferns is these sheltered, sensitive little things that you got to dote over in your garden. Yeah. Uh, and then to see one on a lava flow must be like, yeah. oh, yeah. found it. Yeah, good job, little one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost like, wait, like what botanist stuck that there? Like right, yeah. someone like lurking around the corner, like going to move that plant after I leave. But no, they re they're there. They got there on their own. They're doing just fine. Someone's yeah. job in Hawaii is literally just to mess with you. <laughs> And that's another good point is just the thought, to me at least, when I look at, uh, you know, some of my work deals with our glacial past. And, you know, that's not millions of years, but it's still a decently long time. And one of the big conundrums there is how do we get plants going from, you know, southeastern North America back up into Canada in only 10,000 years? Yeah. And uh, you, you hear a lot about long distance seed dispersal and acorns getting there, but no one really, at least a lot of the conversations don't come back to the spore bearing plants and how quickly they probably would have been able to get there, which would have really set the foundation for bringing other organisms in that might have also been carrying these seeds, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it, they play a role in secessionary dynamics, I, I'd assume. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so there was actually some really beautiful work done um, back in the late 90s by Lisa George that showed that ferns can actually play really key roles in uh, in um, uh, regeneration and successional dynamics of temperate northeastern forests. So she did that work in, in the northeastern U.S. Um, and it was really incredible. I mean, ferns can sort of form this understory that will actually determine to some extent what uh, other tree seedlings will pop up um, and make it through that fern canopy. So they can play a really important role uh, in in forests and, um, and in succession for sure. And yeah, we would definitely expect that ferns' ability to migrate and to disperse particularly in the face of climate change, might be really different from seed plants um, and for other plants that are going to be re more reliant on animal dispersal. So, you know, um, that's, that's the other the other side to pollination biology requiring animals that we were talking about earlier is that often in, in seed plants, you need animals to disperse your seeds as well. So that's another kind of benefit to being a fern that you don't need an animal to either pollinate you or to disperse your propagule. Uh, you just have these spores that are able to fly. So, um, yeah, d the dynamics of how ferns respond to things like climate change could be really different. Um, and another thing, I, ha I have to mention gametophytes because my students and my fern colleagues will kill me if I don't mention <laughs> gametophytes. So this is another really amazing thing about ferns. So ferns and lycophytes both have this, but ferns, there's so many more species of them that we often think about gametophytes um, in, mostly in the context of ferns. So the gametophyte, then if, if, you, if you're not a fern person, you might not realize that ferns are, they have this magical thing where they actually are two completely separate plants. So there's these two totally separate stages of the life cycle that every fern has. Um, 
And they're basically completely independent plants. They have their own ecology, uh, but one of them you never see. Even if you go looking for them, you might not be able to find them because they're minuscule. Um, so without going off the deep end into plant life cycles, um, those spores don't just germinate into another big fern plant. There's kind of an, an intermediate step where the spore that gets dispersed actually germinates into this tiny, itty-bitty little thing that is often no more than a few square millimeters, and that's called the gametophyte. Um, and that little thing is actually the thing that has sex. So that little thing produces eggs and sperm, and when fertilization takes place, then you get the, the, the big, you know, the thing we think about when we think about a fern or any other type of plant, which is the sporophyte. But these little gametophytes, they're green, they're photosynthetic, um, they have an ecology that often is completely different from the ecology of the sporophyte, and really interestingly, they often can live in places that the sporophyte can't. So by virtue of having their own separate set of physiological requirements, you can find gametophytes living in places where their own sporophyte of their own species is not able to grow. Um, so I've got uh, uh, quite a few colleagues who have worked on this, and one of my students is really interested in this. Um, and, and you actually had a, a post, one of your most, I think your last post was all about these ferns. So listeners, go and read that on, on the Independent Plants uh, page. It was great. Um, and, and the first thank reference you, I think you. you cited was uh, with my student, Gerald Pinson's uh, paper on this that we had come out last year. Uh, so it's really fascinating. And I think that um, when we think about how ferns might respond to climate change, particularly, I mean, I think about this a lot, particularly in sort of, you know, Florida ferns. We've got a, a whole project in the lab that's thinking about how the ferns in the state of Florida are going to respond to climate change and how they're going to move. You really have to think about the gametophyte. And um, it's only been in the last like 15 years that we have really started to think about the physiology and the ecology of gametophytes. Um, and I've got a, a wonderful friend and colleague at Colgate University in New York, Eddie Watkins, uh, who's a gametophyte ecologist. Um, he's, a, he's a fern ecologist, a, a fern physiologist, but he's done a lot of work on gametophytes um, and really uh, made some incredible discoveries about their, their tolerance for drought and desiccation, for example, uh, and really revealed things about them that we never knew before. So that whole side of the life cycle in ferns is like wide open territory for anybody who is interested in thinking about climate and plant traits and how plants are going to respond and how they're going to be able to move and uh, and that kind of thing. It's really fascinating and so little work has been done on it. Um, there's a lot a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, that's pretty wild and I'm, I'm really happy you bring up the difference between the gametophyte needs and the sporophyte needs because, you know, I, I really got to thinking about it when I found those Appalachian Viteria, the shoestring mm -hmm. gametophytes, and thinking just that you know, it's, you wouldn't look at a caterpillar and its respective butterfly and go, oh, they require the exact same things. No, the caterpillar needs something different to survive and get to adulthood, and then the adults have completely different needs. And that stands completely true for these gametophytes and the sporophytes, because they are independent, free-living mm -hmm. uh, versions of that creature. And I would assume when you're a few millimeters big and only a few cells, you look like a little piece of cellophane yeah. uh, versus a, a, a full-grown fern with giant leaves and some you know, uh, developed rhizosphere. That, that's vastly different yeah. pressures and stresses and things you need to consider yeah. uh, for these organisms. Yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy of the butterfly and the caterpillar. I'm going to steal that. I will credit you, but I'm going to start using that because that's really great. And often, yeah, I mean, people think about, you know, animals so much more readily and recognize, you know, the, the distinctions there. Um, so, yeah, I think that's great. And it's totally, as you say, it's exactly the same sort of situation. You would not expect those two, you know, stages to have the same kind of requirements. And it's exactly the same thing with ferns. Wow. Yeah. 
So there you go, a whole new group of questions to be asked in a field that desperately needs some attention. So yeah. listeners, if you're looking for a master's or PhD project. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, one of the really cool things I found when I was uh, looking over your website, your work, is, is something interesting is going on with ferns in Africa, and you, you're kind of on one of the front lines and looking at that. Care to elaborate a little bit about why Africa's ferns are so unique to you, yeah, at least? Sure. Yeah, um, so I've, I've been interested in, in um, African plants for a really long time. So I actually was lucky enough to go to Kenya when I was 14 with the Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts nice. are amazing. Anyone out there who has has uh, young women in your life, you should encourage them to join Girl Scouts. Um, and so that trip really left a deep impression on me. And then when I was in grad school working on Dryopteris, one of the goals of my PhD was to produce a global phylogeny for the genus Dryopteris. And I worked really hard at that. I gathered all these samples. I visited a whole bunch of herbaria, built this phylogeny, and like you know had a great you know beautiful figure in my defense talk with an entire continent missing, right? So I did all this work and was so proud of myself for building this, this quote, global phylogeny. And I had like two samples of African species and there are close to 40 African species of Dryopteris. And the reason for this was that they had been collected to some extent, but they, they were not accessible to me. So I couldn't get at those, those samples easily. And so, um, yeah, so I, I ended up in this situation where I, I was basically trying to reconstruct global patterns of relationships in biogeography, but with a whole continent missing. And the more I sort of thought about this and looked into it, I realized that Dryopteris was not the only group of ferns where this was going to be a problem. Um, and basically, our, just our, our knowledge and our understanding of African ferns and the degree to which they've been collected was really sorely lacking compared to a lot of other parts of the world. So, um there are many, many very active um, biologists and um, and fern folks who are collecting in North America and in Central and South America and in Southeast Asia uh, and in you know mainland Asia and in Europe. And then there's Africa, and there's not um, there has not been a tremendous amount of work on ferns in Africa. Um, and so I was just really sort of captivated by this idea, and I, I started to make some forays into um, to trying to address this issue. So um, I did publish a paper this last year, uh, kind of filling that gap that was left over from my PhD research. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's in called Into Africa is how the title of the paper starts, and it's in the American Journal of Botany, and it's open access. That's something I think is really important. So whenever I can, I pay to make papers open access. So you can go and read it if you want to. Um, so uh, that that story was basically, or that paper was basically uh, going in and finding samples of all the Afri African species of Dryopteris and figuring out how they fit into the phylogeny. And the spoiler alert for that paper is basically that most of the African accessions form a clade, and that clade has um, descended from an ancestor that probably dispersed to Africa from Asia sometime within the last 10 million years, and then mm -hmm. radiated into this clade of species. Um, so that's really cool, but it begs another question for me, which is, and this is like the great thing about science, right? That like you solve one question and it just opens a whole bunch of other doors. So why did those things only um, evolve in the last 10 million years? Like if you read about the history, about what we know about Africa, that continent has been more or less where it is with, you know, kind of the, the dimensions that it's got and roughly the same climate for like over 100 million years, a really, really long time. So why is there no evidence that uh, for this fern genus at least of um, dispersals to or 
evolution within that continent longer than the last 10 million years or so. Um, and there are a couple of other genera where uh, people, of ferns, where people have done kind of similar studies where you can uh, sort of try to, to pull out this similar type of information. And in those cases as well, it seems like it's the last maybe 10 to 20 million years where these groups are getting to Africa and then diversifying there. Um, so I have a, a proposal pending with the National Science Foundation to try to address this question um, using more genera and more thorough sampling um, to try to get at what might be kind of the climatic history that would have shaped the dispersal of ferns to Africa and their ability to, to evolve there. Um, so funding rates are not great right now, but keep your fingers crossed for me that maybe that'll get funded and we'll be able to answer some of these questions about African ferns. Well, it sounds like there's no shortage of stuff on the horizon for you, provided, you know, certain dollar signs can get arranged in the right way. Uh, sorry, you're in a weird state for that on top of what's going on. Um, but <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's really exciting to have, A, the passion for it, and then B, just so many new doors staring you in the face, and you're just going, which one am I going to open today, or this year, or next year kind of deal. And you've got a, it sounds like you've got a really great team of, of curious people working under you. And, and Absolutely. Yeah, I have really great students. Um, I have had a wonderful postdoc who just finished up, Sally Chambers, and she's now at the, the Selby Botanical Gardens um, down in Sarasota and Florida, close by, which is awesome. So Excellent. Uh, we'll get to keep working together. And yeah, I've got fantastic students and fantastic fern colleagues. Um, that's one of the really wonderful things about working on ferns is that we've got just a great community of people who love these organisms and uh, we all work together and get along well and it's it's just great. It's a really it's a really good group of plants to to be part of the community of people working on them. Awesome. Now I know you mentioned it earlier, but again that pitch for needing material, go ahead and you know, anything that you've got going on in the future, this is this is your time to sell yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so anybody who is interested in uh, sending us material again uh, basically, the, what we're doing is if you send us material for, let's say, you've got, you know, a clade of mosses that you're interested in, and you can send me material for 50 species, we will sequence them. Uh, and the we're, we're targeting a set of about 450 nuclear genes. We're also expecting to get chloroplasts and mitochondrial sequence assembled out of the off-target reads. So we will give you those data. Um, and we're, we're basically like kind of embargoing it for a year or so, so that like you will get the data for your set of species and we will not make those data public immediately. So we give you time to do whatever you want to do with them. Um, but then after that, we will make it public because we're, we're very committed to that. So um, yeah, anyone out there who's interested in, in being part of this, we would love to have you. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in new grad students who want to work on ferns or are interested in phylogeny and biogeography or physiology or polyploidy or basically anything that we talked about today. Um, yeah, we've got, we've got a great team here and uh, University of Florida is a really wonderful place and it doesn't snow here, which is very <laughs> nice. I've come to that a lot. So uh, yeah. you're speaking to me at a very deep <laughs> level. <laughs> I survived that snowmageddon a few Novembers ago up in Buffalo, so I'm I'm slowly just moving to where there's no winter. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I recommend it. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, you know, I, I'll put links up, but if anyone wants to find out more or get in touch with you in any form, uh, how do you recommend they reach out? Um, so my website would be a great place to start. So it's, uh, if I can remember the address, it's cesalab.biology.ufl.edu. I think I've got that right. 
Uh, or my, do, do I have that right? Oh, yeah. I think so. I, I have it up, but uh, yeah, I mean, you're an easy Google, so. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, or my email is my full name, emilysessa at ufl.edu. Um, so yeah, questions, grad school inquiries, uh, wanting to contribute to that GoFlag project, the Flagellate Plants. Yeah, happy to chat with anyone. Great. Yeah. Well, Dr. Sessa, this has been fantastic. Uh, I really love your passion for it, and you're doing some incredible work. So keep it up, and listeners, you better contribute. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. It's really awesome. Yeah, of course. Keep us up to date. You're welcome back, and you know, there's there's so many cool things on the horizon for for y'all down there, and uh, it'd be nice to hear back from you as you get new stuff on board. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, have a great afternoon. Thanks. You too. Thank Cheers. you. Bye. Right. All right, that's the conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. What did I tell you? You can really feel her passion coming through and everything she says. It's so nice to see a PI who really loves what they do. It's so easy to get caught up in the uh, bureaucracy of academia and focusing on writing grants. And a lot of times you just feel like the passion has kind of been wrung out of a lot of folks, but not with Dr. Sessa. I really thank her for taking time to talk with us. It was a great conversation, and I don't know about you, but I learned a lot. All right, again, youtube.com slash plants. Check out the videos. We're having a lot of fun making them, featuring some really cool music, and uh, hopefully getting some word out there and showing the world a nice, unique view of botanical passions. Also, patreon.com slash plants. Consider supporting this. And stickers, indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Pick up one of your own, two of your own, multiples of your own. Give them to your friends and family and loved ones. And know that every purchase, 50% of that got donated to orchid conservation efforts here in North America. Alright everyone, keep checking back in, hit subscribe. Got a lot of really cool interviews coming up in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Until then, this is Matt signing out. Adios.